Well, you can turn to Revelation again as we continue in our study. We proclaim tell on the mountain that Jesus Christ is born, but that he's died and risen again, and that he will return gloriously. And we have seen that, haven't we? In the beginning of this book, an amazing vision of the victorious Christ, our victorious Lord, in his um, purity and eternality, his authority, and all of these things, as John literally is wiped out or taken aback by this vision, and the Lord gives him strength to continue on, even a quick viewing of this incredible sight of our victorious Lord Jesus was enough to bring John to his knees. And yet, Jesus comes to him and just that touch on the shoulder gives him strength to continue. Because he has a lot for John to write and a lot for John to proclaim. And that is a part of what we're looking at this morning as well. Even as uh, Sandy was reading from Micah, I realized the tie-ins um, at the end of that passage with the return of the Lord Jesus that really ties in well with what we saw in that description. Well, we're now into the uh, messages to the churches. Um, and we saw last week that at the end, Jesus' commission for John to write these messages to the churches that they were for the angels of the churches. And of course, I don't mean to be self-serving here. Certainly not trying to say that all pastors are angels or even that I'm an angel. But in this regard, um, in the context, it is referring to the messenger, the leaders of the different churches. And as such, these leaders would at times come to see John. They were, even though he was exiled, come to visit him and these leaders would come and then they would go back to the churches and John could literally send the messages from straight from Christ to these angels of the churches and they could pass this on to their congregations. And so we have seven, seven different churches that Jesus is giving messages to that represent the whole of the churches. Now, of course, these aren't all of the local churches in the Christian community at this point. But there were hundreds, there were thousands maybe of house churches meeting in different cities. And then the, 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 the house churches as a whole were referred to as the church of, let's say, Ephesus, Smyrna. Um, and so these churches that are mentioned here are ones that John would know well, but that a representative of the conditions of all the ministries. And folks, they represent the ministries and the local churches that we have today as well. And our responsibility as we listen to these messages from Christ is not to say, boy, I hope those people sure shored things up and got things right back thousands of years ago. No, these are for us. Do we have the same strengths and weaknesses? Village Chapel will match up in some form or fashion with these descriptions. And which ones we match up with is, is a decision that we have to make collectively, but more importantly, in our hearts. 
And so this first message is to Ephesus. I had uh, a map back there, and I, I brought that up with me. So and I know you all can't see this, but um, you have here um, the east coast of, of Asia Minor, and you have here this little tiny island off the coast called Patmos. It's almost microscopic when you look at it. That's where John was exiled. And he's going to be addressing the churches in kind of a horseshoe fashion. Today, we'll see Ephesus, tonight Smyrna, and then we'll continue on. And this seems to follow what was considered a postal route back then that would go around and reach all of these different churches from Ephesus all the way to Laodicea. So it made it convenient for the messengers that they could get those in the mix and then would be sent around to the churches and Christ's messages for these churches is so important. He's revealed himself to John as a victorious Savior who holds authority over his church. The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and who knows the conditions of each local congregation. Remember that fiery gaze in his eyes. Folks, Jesus knows everything that Village Chapel does. He knows everything that each of our members are involved with. There's nothing hid from him at gaze. He knows the conditions, and so he is certainly the right person to address the strengths and the problems of each ministry. So throughout the next few messages in this series of studies, we're going to hear what Jesus has to say to each of these churches. And again, examine it for our own ministry situation. Jesus begins with, Ephesus, verse 1, chapter 2, to the angel of the church in Ephesus, Pat, that's the pastor or leader, write to them the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Remember, those stars are the leaders of the churches and thus represent Jesus' authority over the churches and their leadership. And he walks among the seven golden lampstands. Those are the churches. And that means that Jesus is always aware. Well, look, folks, remember, his presence is with us even now. Jesus is here. What is he saying in our hearts? Is he pleased with how we've worshipped him so far? He's always assessing, always walking, always observing. He has a message for this church as well. The church uh, Ephesus meant desirable. And remember how I mentioned we have an interpretation that's not as popular now as it used to be. But you still see it from time to time. And so I'm going to point this out as we continue through these letters. So if you've heard this before, you can evaluate why I don't think this is the correct interpretation. But there's an interpretation that has been uh, popular for hundreds of years, maybe, viewing the churches as periods of church history, these seven churches. And they would say that this church in Ephesus, even though it was a real church, it also represented the apostolic church that met from the beginning of the church in A.D. 30, let's say, to the end of the first century, 800 A.D. Now, why would they say that? Ephesus represents the apostolic church because of the purity and the good works and the vibrancy of this early church is thought to be described here as Jesus gives these great strengths of this ministry. 
but then also as described their loss of focus, this interpretation says that the early church, the apostolic church, lost its focus and its vibrancy toward the end of that century, 100 AD or so. Well, again, maybe you've heard that. And that sounds good in some respect. But folks, isn't it true that what Jesus is about to describe in this church reflected many churches throughout church history, not just the early church? And in fact, don't we today in many of our churches have the same struggle where churches are doing many good things, but they've lost their love for the Lord? That's not just a problem that was significant to the early church. Churches struggle with that all throughout church history, even today. In fact, that's a problem that Jesus is addressing. In the midst of right ministry, there is a lack of love for him. And he is going to deal with that. So as we read, the title of this message is Patiently Enduring Without Love. Strange contrast that unfortunately is true in too many churches today. Let's continue to read verse 2. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, and have but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first, your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. Yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. <coughs> he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Father, this is a marvelous commendation and a terrible rebuke at the same time. Lord, as we desire to discern further Jesus' warning to this church in Ephesus that met almost 2,000 years ago. May we take heart ourselves that this is not a message that was meant for a church at a particular time but has no bearing for us today. Lord, help us to realize that these very characteristics could be described of any church, maybe including ours. And Lord, help us to then not only be faithful, but rekindle the love that we need to have for, for your Son, Jesus Christ, and for his ministry. We need your help to do that. And we pray that you would do that as we study this further. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Patiently enduring without love. Verse 7 verses here. And we're going to see in the first three verses that patient endurance in ministry is certainly commendable. And as we saw in verse 1, that Jesus does know the condition of the local churches. Let me give you a little bit more background on the church in Ephesus. Obviously, um, Christ is commanding John to write to this church. It was a thriving city at this point in New Testament history. And in the past, 
it had enjoyed being a thriving seaport and was a major part of the business that took place in commerce in Ephesus, but it had a slight problem, and that is the silt from the mountains had started filling in the harbor. And even today, the ruins of Ephesus, you can see that that silt basically took out the harbor altogether. But there was also, the city was also easily accessible by land, by highways that connected the most important cities in the Roman Empire. So it was still a very important city. And in fact, this was probably where John, before he was exiled, had the hub of his ministry as he was ministering to the church in Ephesus and also these other churches as well. Ephesus enjoyed the importance of being what was called a free city. And that meant because of its loyal support to Rome, Rome allowed it to self-govern, to govern itself. And that was a privilege few cities would experience. We all know the Olympics and the modern version of those. Well, another reason Ephesus was so well known is they had an Olympics-type event held annually, an annual athletics games event that drew people literally from all over the world, not too unlike the Olympics today if you have the money for that kind of thing. And Ephesus was the place where it took place. It housed, on the negative side, certainly a major center of worship with the temple of the Greek goddess Artemis, or Artemis, excuse me. It was also the, the weirdness of uh, false idol worship. The Greek goddess Artemis was also the Roman goddess Diana. And so in scriptures, you'll hear of the Ephesians um, worshiping the goddess Diana. That was the Roman version. The Greek version was Artemis. They were both the same figure, really. And Artemis was one of the most important figures of worship. It was a female deity in that pagan society, the deity of fertility. And unfortunately, there was a lot of immorality and a lot of criminal behavior that took place around this temple, this famous temple. And so um, a lot of vice going on in Ephesus as well. Now, interesting, just as a side note here, you may hear some of these names and think, oh, that's so ancient history. Um, if I remember correctly, there some of these um, private foundations that are building these rockets to send it to space, uh, the next one that's going up is named Artemis, after this uh, Greek goddess. So we still have the temples of this kind of stuff in our society today as well. Well, in the midst of the iniquity of this place, Paul came, and even though he had a few years of ministry, the Apostle Paul, he had great impact, if you'll remember. And the gospel triumphed powerfully in this city. Paul's gospel ministry, and that ministry continued, remember, through his friends Aquila and Priscilla and then Apollos, and a, a, a strong, spiritually powerful church began to take place or, or begin to be built up by the Lord. And then it seems as if John eventually came to this area, the Apostle John, and he had probably over 30 years of ministry there, eclipsing Paul's three years. It was an important church ministry in a distinguished city is the point. This church had great strengths. Amazing, really. A wonderful resume that any church would want. But it had a fatal flaw. That may have meant the end of it if it did not repent. 
Well, let's see. First of all, Je Jesus knows the conditions. He knew the condition of the church of Ephesus, and he commends that condition, the endurance of the church of Ephesus. And he commends the endurance of local churches today. Verse 2, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, found them to be false. Jesus knows the strengths of this ministry in Ephesus, and they certainly are commendable. That word toil at the beginning of verse 2 really has the idea of a ministry that's expending great energy. You really could say almost sweat and tears. I mean, these folks put in the effort to their ministry there in Ephesus. They were serious about this. They toiled. They worked hard. That's what the meaning of that uh, that word has in mind in ministry works. So they were hard workers. They didn't slap. Your patient endurance, enduring patiently through the most difficult challenges. And there were many, as I just mentioned, the, um, the idol worship, the immorality going on would certainly make it a, a challenging place to minister to. And yet these folks continued on. We're going to see it in the next verse without complaint. <clears throat> they, uh, they were valiant in their efforts and in uh, their, their ministry as far as just bearing up under, really is what these words are describing here, that they were able to bear up, that they were spiritually strong enough to endure through the evil in their midst. And they didn't allow that evil, furthermore, to influence their ministry. And that's no small thing, folks. We know today as more, as our culture descends into more rampant wickedness, it's hard for the church to maintain purity. There's always um, question, there's always things that are, that are questioned and new interpretations of things that have to be tested. And it can be exhausting at times. Ministry, just trying to stay pure as a local church ministry, can be exhausting. And yet these folks did not allow the evil into their midst. They instituted effective tests. You can say evil sensors, you know, as um, are as these burglar alarm systems that you can purchase now and these uh, door cams and things become more technolo technologically advanced. The sensors pick up more and more things. And it's interesting, sometimes you see on YouTube some of these weird things that these sensors pick up, animals doing strange things all kinds of things, but it's because the technology is so careful and so sensitive that it picks up everything. And really, Christ is describing this church as having sensitive, evil sensors that are able to pick up on false teaching and wickedness. You cannot bear with those who are evil, but you've tested those who call themselves apostles and are not. Especially at this time, you had the select group of God-ordained leaders called the apostles, but there were many that were false apostles and trying to play themselves off as having the leadership and authority that Paul and John and the others had. And John said, and, and Christ is saying to John to say to the church in Ephesus, you guys have done well at detecting those false teachers and not allowing them to have influence in the church. You found them to be false. 
And that has, has the idea, this whole picture of exposing false teachers so that they so that the church can take note of them. The wickedness can be eradicated and they can maintain ministry purity. And folks, these things are no small accomplishments. Christ has been working in their midst, allowing them, them to do this. They endure hardships patiently, bearing up under heavy loads and burdens without complaint or spiritual fatigue. Look at verse 3. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake. There was all kinds of persecution that they had to bear under that was very hard. They, they faced jail. They faced sometimes even death for standing, taking a stand for Christ against the Roman Empire and against the wickedness in their midst. But they did it, and here, I think, is amazing, too. You've not grown weary. They continue to be patient. They continued to be without complaint or spiritual fatigue. Sometimes in ministry, we can get so busy and so overloaded that we begin to complain and we feel that sense. If you've ever in the past um, maybe overworked in a ministry and you have that sense of fatigue, like, man, I'm just tired all the time. Well, we can understand that that, that happens at times. And sometimes that's a mark that we need to slow down and carefully reevaluate how much we're doing. But these folks were not suffering any fatigue. They were glad to bear up, to uh, persevere, to keep their congregation pure. Commendable, commendable qualities that any church would want to have. This is an impressive church resume list, right? Any church today that we were a part of. And I think in a lot of ways, our own church does many of these things well. We're thankful for that. We're careful. I think we, we maintain the purity of our ministry in many ways. It's an impressive accomplishment list for sure. And as I was thinking of this, I was uh, thinking of back in my school days, at, my undergraduate days at, at Christian School in Pensacola, excuse me, Pensacola Christian College, where I studied art, commercial art, and uh, marketing. And commercial art was different, again, from graphic design in the fact that you also had, besides computer graphics, you had painting and drawing, and um, there, was, there was a lot of expectation. <clears throat> and as I was studying for this message, I remember one guy in particular that was incredibly talented. He was a year underneath me, but he was in some of my classes. And, and everybody recognized this, including the teachers. And as we would be given projects, we would, you know, you, your project has to have this parameter and this parameter, and we'd all be working on them. And this guy, he could, in half the time it would take us to put something together, he could put it together and he could make it look three times as good in half the time with it not even finished. Sometimes his pencil drawings looked better than our paintings. And it was just, it was a little frustrating, but it really was remarkable. This, this guy was talented. In fact, there was a well-known portrait painter. Um, I don't know if the man's still living at this time, but one of our art instructors had met, been mentored by this painter, portrait painter, and he was able to get this young man in 
as of summer to learn under this man because of his talent and ability. And this young man had an opportunity that none of the rest of us had because he was incredibly talented and his resume was impressive with his work. But it was interesting at the same time when he would turn in his assignments, there were many times where his grades reflected the same grades that we had or even worse. And that was because he also had a fatal flaw in his character at that time. And that is because he was so good, he didn't take the time and really put in the effort and the instructors knew that. They knew that he could do better than any of the rest of us and put in half the effort and many of them didn't let him get away. And so if he turned into something that was half finished, he got the grade that the rest of us who, who maybe had finished ours, but it was less quality than his, we received the same grade because he was talented and it was impressive and he could do amazing things, but he lost his commitment. He wasn't committed to putting in the work to truly being better and to doing all that he could. He wasn't motivated to do that. It really ties in with the second part here is Jesus describes this amazing ministry, but they have this fatal flaw. And that's a lack of love in ministry. It's fatal. And Jesus will condemn that. And Jesus will condemn loveless ministry in local churches, in the church in Ephesus, and any church today that has lost their love for Christ. But I have this against you, verse 4, that you have abandoned the love that you had first. For all of its impressive features, it has a fatal flaw. The love for him that they had once had for him has lessened markedly. And it's not that they've fallen out of love from Jesus altogether, but it's apparent. It's dramatically has weakened. It's dramatically weak. Their energetic ministry is probably now motivated by other factors than just their love for Christ. Maybe it's for duty. Maybe it's to uh, impress the community, whatever it is. It's not motivated fully by their love for Christ. Maybe their service is not quite as vibrant as it used to be. We're not told what it is. But certainly it has the idea that their love for Christ has diminished, so their effectiveness in ministry has diminished, even with all these impressive characteristics. Probably involved in this as well as we get to verse 7 is that there were currently in this church maybe many inauthentic claims of conversion since the days where Paul had helped start this ministry in that city. When Paul began that, <clears throat> helped the Lord used him to begin that church, certainly there was people being saved and a vibrant conversions, vibrant testimonies, love for the Lord. Probably at this point, there were many that were just there for other reasons and they weren't even truly converted or saved at all. And the love that they had for Christ was literally non-existent. Well, folks, is that just a characteristic of a church that met 2,000 years ago? That can happen in any church today. That can happen in our church. And we get so involved with so many different activities, even distributing these packets and different things. But we're doing it for all kinds of reasons rather than love for Christ. And Jesus says that will not stand. I will deal 
with that kind of ministry, regardless of your oppressive accomplishments. Verse 5, remember, therefore, from when you have fallen, they've fallen tremendously from the original heights of ministry devotion. Repent, turn back, and do the works you did at first. And if not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Jesus won't let this ministry or any ministry today get by with that current state. They must repent. They must change or literally be removed. Turn from their sin. Ask the Lord to rekindle their love for Jesus Christ. Folks, that's something that each of us have to assess individually. I can't look at each of you and tell what your love for Christ is, the, the, the um, amount of love that you have or the fervor of love. <clears throat> we can be good actors many times. Each of us has to assess, am I really doing ministry just because I love Jesus? Just because he died for me? Because he's risen again and because he expects faithfulness from me, I will serve him faithfully. Or do we have other motivations? The love for acclaim. The love to look a certain way in community. You know, you, there's all kinds of other motivations that creep in, right? To look good, to look spiritual in front of other people. Each of us have to assess this fatal flaw and eradicate it in turn and change. And folks, we can. We can turn from this and say, Lord Jesus, I see this in my life. I'm not loving you like I used to. And I repent, and I and I want to change, and I want our ministry to change, so that we have a passionate, vibrant love for you. Another way to test that is how do I love God's people? If I don't really care about God's people very much anymore, that shows a lack of love for Jesus Christ, and it needs to be dealt with. Now, what about this warning? I will remove your lampstand from its place. What does that mean? Well, let's be clear. It doesn't speak of death or eternal judgment here, but it's very practical, and in its context, it makes the most sense that Jesus is basically saying, you'll lose the opportunity to worship together as a local congregation. Your light in your community will be put out. There'll be other lights that I will raise up, and yours I won't need anymore. Because if you don't have love for me, all the other wonderful things that you are doing are for naught. They don't impress me. And if you don't change, you won't be worshiping together at all. We forget this sometimes, folks, but meeting together as a local church body is a privilege that Jesus Christ gives us. And it can be lost. We don't heed and obey his warnings. We have no right to be able to worship in a local body together. As, as a church of Christ, certainly we worship together. But individual ministries, Jesus says, if you're not, if you don't have a vibrancy and a love and a passion for me, I can remove you all together. Sobering warning and something that we all need to reflect on. He'll condemn loveless ministry, but he expects enduring ministry in local churches. At the same time, verse 6, Jesus does make it clear that he does approve of their stance. Yet this you have. You hate the work of the Nicolaitans, 
which I also hate. Now, what are the works of the Nicolaitans? Well, folks, here's the problem with this. Jesus doesn't tell us. It was known to the original church, and they knew, and, and, and they had um, taken a stand against these works. But we don't know what those works are today. Well, how can we practically apply this? Well, whatever it was from the context that Christ has given earlier, it did involve false teaching. So in a general sense, we can certainly apply this to say that we hate false teaching. Those that, not the people, but their teaching. Those that would preach a false gospel. Those that would preach anything that is different or twisted from God's word as he's given it to us. We ought to have, folks, a hatred for those that would preach differently from the truth that God has given us. And Jesus approves that ministry stance towards false teachings. He says, that's right. And he says, these other things are right, too. So don't stop doing those good things. But get your focus back. Love me again like you used to when you first trusted in me. Then verse 7, he gives a message to, as he does in each of these messages, a general message now, as all of the churches would eventually get to read each of these messages about what Christ is saying about their attributes and his assessment of them. All the other churches would read this as well. So then there's a message for all the churches to learn from each of these. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And that is um, that basically describing here a general promise from the Spirit for all the churches that have spiritual hearing, that are listening with spiritual ears and comprehending and submitting to the work of the Spirit in their lives. Folks, if we're submitted to what the Spirit is saying here through this message from Jesus Christ, then we will hear the importance. What is that? To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. The one who conquers with our victorious Savior leading us, folks. We can conquer all of these tendencies and temptations for weakness. We can have victory over a lack of love for Jesus Christ. We can have victory in keeping our church ministry pure and vibrant. We don't have to have our lampstand removed. We can trust and rely on Jesus Christ, and he gives us victory. We can conquer. Victorious in our battle with the world. And that person who continues and endures will show what was true the whole time, that they were believers, that the church was real, and they'll be with Christ for all eternity. And the way that Jesus describes this is marvelous. Here is the glorious reversal of the fall all the way back in the book of Genesis, because here we have full access to a tree, a fruit of the tree. And this fruit of this tree were uh, allowed and uh, encouraged to eat from. And it shows that we will enjoy the eternal blessings of life in Christ. Jesus turns around from the very beginning, from the fall when man rejected him. In the end, Jesus turns all that around and invites us to eat of the fruit of eternal life. 
your faith in him. It's your love of him. Folks, in the end, patient, enduring ministry throughout the challenges we encounter in a fallen world, it's desirable, it's commendable. It's good job, thumbs up. Toil in ministry service is not overlooked by our Lord. We can get tired in ministry and say, oh, you know, what, what is the worth of all this? And yet Jesus knows. He knows the effort we're putting in. He's aware. Above all of this, folks, what's the one thing, though, that we must, we must continue to do? That is maintain the love and devotion that we have for Christ. Don't let anything else motivate you to serve. Christ faithfully, except for love. Just meditation on what Jesus has done for us on the cross. And the fact that he has that he's been resurrected and he's defeated death and hell, that alone ought to motivate us to serve him faithfully, regardless of the obstacles. What is, in the end, folks, your motivation for serving him right now? It's not love for Jesus. You can change. You can repent. You can turn to him so that we're known not only as a church that is good and faithful in our deeds, but in our love for him. It is the most important characteristic of any local body. And if we don't change, the loss can eventually bring loss of fellowship together for a local church body. We all know situations of churches and New Hampshire, in our country, around the world, we no longer meet together. We've disbanded. We don't know all the reasons and all the happenings behind those things, but both surely some of those were because in the end, the people lost their love for Christ. Christ had to end their ministry. All of these churches, seven churches that we have, I think maybe one of them in the same city, there's still a church that, that that supposedly gives the gospel of Christ. But these seven churches have not lasted in their ministry. Something happened there. <clears throat> Let's pray that Jesus will help us to have an honest reflection on our own ministry. That we still may be able to have the privilege of worshiping together and serving. Father, Marvelous list of accomplishments that we wonder over, and yet a grievous flaw, a lack of love for your son. Let that not be going here at Village Chapel Baptist Church. Let our love for you continue, that we would be useful and effective until Jesus returns. First and last, we long for that. Help us to be faithful and passionate in our love for him until that time. We need your help for that, and we ask for that. Lord, if there is still someone here who does not know Christ as their Savior and has never had that love, Lord, may, we, may they today turn and repent of their sin and experience the love of Christ that leads to eternal life. May that be today. We pray for those recently that were heard the gospel this past Tuesday, this memorial service, that that would take place and would work in hearts there. Just help us to have effective ministry until Jesus returns. This we ask in Jesus' name that we pray.